0: everyone. This is Saqib. Welcome to another episode of uh, Tennis with an Accent. Uh, a couple of finals were played today. Ten's a number that we'll be discussing among many other topics. And the guest today is Eric Johnson, uh, who is a very well-known voice on Twitter for his coverage associated with Tennis for I hope I'm getting the names right. On that note, welcome, Eric, to the show. No, I mean, we've uh, conversed every now and then uh, on Twitter. Uh, you know, I like the way you present data and you are pretty much dialed in and you give opinions, which is not an easy thing to do. Uh, in, in fact, it's an easy thing to do if you just want to offend people, would you uh, present uh, at least a balance take uh, from where I see. And on that note, uh, uh, let's uh, plan to discuss uh, some of the happenings in the tennis world today. Ten's a big number today, so let's start with Dominic Team. What are your first memories of uh, Dominic Team? Uh, this is guy, you know, you did a poll a few weeks ago uh, on his evolution, why some people think he's still not a hardcore player. That was a pretty funny poll. But uh, talk about, uh, you know, what are your first memories and how he has grown in the last few years with his game and all the speculation that comes around with a huge backswings. And he's a clay court player and a clay court grinder as for the Labor Cup announcer. So what's your take on uh, the evolution of Dominic Team?
1: Yeah, um yeah, I remember watching him uh, a few years ago when he was uh new on the on the on the tour really and he had his bleached blonde hair, uh which I think uh he said afterwards was because he lost a bet or something. So um but yeah, game game wise, uh well he's always had like you say, these huge swings and, and, and a lot of power, but what he has been doing over the last few years, and especially this year since I started working with uh, Nicolas Massou, is, is he's added a lot more nuance to his game, if you will. It's uh, not just big power uh, ground strokes all the time. He's actually uh, constructing the points more wisely, uh, using his uh, excellent slice better, and uh, yeah, he's, he's just becoming uh, uh, more... Uh, of a mature player um, on court and making making wise decisions uh,
0: the results good. have been pretty good too this year like uh, let's talk about your twitter poll so why did you create that poll and i, mean, I know it's kind of a uh, there's a little sarcasm there because uh, right. let's just talk about you know and that poll does tie in with his performance if we take from last year's us open till now he's uh, he's done quite well on surfaces outside of clay especially hard courts
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so maybe I should explain the poll first. Uh, what I, The question I asked was uh, uh, what will it take for people to, to take teams seriously on hardcore? And the options were uh, a 500 title, a master's title, beating Federer in the final, and making a major quarterfinal. And the joke being, of course, he's done all of these. Uh, so the point I was trying to make was was that um, people already should be taking him more seriously on Harcourt uh, than they are. And this week is just another example uh, of that. Um, so, yeah. And and let's not forget he does have a uh, grass title as well from a couple of years ago when he actually beat Federer in Stuttgart, I believe. Um, so, um, he... he Clay clay will probably always be his best surface, but he is definitely uh, dangerous uh, on other surfaces as well. Um, slow hardcore uh, for example, like like Vienna was this week.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, this is again, uh, if you look at teams, uh, ATP record this year. He's uh, he's won 45 matches. Uh, after today, and out of those 45 matches, you, it's a fair shout. I think more than 50% of those matches could have been come on hardcore because he doesn't play uh, a clay schedule like he used to. Uh, actually, he was still in, in Brazil and Argentina. So I, I would say maybe, yeah, it's, it's close to 50%. I take that back. But uh, mm-hmm. his hardcore resume is impressive. And this uh, this Vienna court and then his success in Beijing, like you said and uh he got the better of uh, Matteo Berrettini who uh I think he lost to in the in the Asian swing somewhere I believe was in Shanghai um, yeah, that's yeah. Totally right. so uh, is he is he a contender according to you uh you know in the big show in London of course he's going to be playing in Bercy starting mm-hmm. tomorrow but uh, you think he can do some damage in and uh, at the O2 arena with what you have seen so far again it's too far of a speculation but the kind of company that field has it has there's no weak matches they're like eight best right. players so you're playing uh, your peers who are contending for these big tournaments and who have the best record so what's your take on teams chances in that kind of a setup
1: um yeah it depends a little bit uh on 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 how fast the surface will be obviously the slower the better but um he, well of course, he can do damage. Anyone there can do damage. Uh, but as far as uh, indoor hard court goes, uh, as much as I think Team is is, is uh, an excellent uh, player on all surfaces, uh, I think we have to rank him obviously below Federer, Djokovic, and, and Medvedev at the very least. Uh, so he, he he can do damage and he can win some matches. Uh, well. If he does that, if he wins matches, he's going deep there. But I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him in a semi-final. Uh, but in a final in, in, at the O2, that would surprise me.
0: Uh, hmm. uh, let's talk about the importance of winning at home. Uh, I'm also a tennis uh, you know tennis geek like you. I've, I've tried to follow the sport for a long time, and I've always followed uh, the sport itself more than just uh, you know my favorite players in the past and now and i understand even going back in the old boris becker days or even the stefan edberg days when stockholm was a big event winning at home is very important yeah some uh, it's, it's it's a different feel for like the uh, players whose nations host a major because then it's the ultimate show but even for uh, other nations like you know like sweden or germany or even you know ken Ishikori in japan i mean the home home tournament presents like a big you know big opportunity because you're followed by players Uh, your fans and in in most cases uh, these smaller tournaments uh, fortune are related to their top players like when becker was huge germany had two stops in the fall the atp tour world for world tour finals was played in germany Uh, stuttgart indoor was i think a super nine event which is a masters 1000 equivalent now and uh, and vice versa so talk about this uh, the importance of this event how much pressure you know according to you what you felt while watching team, because uh, the celebration said it all. It was a pretty emotional win, and he, this was his tenth try at the home tournament, and he finally won this.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like you say, you saw you saw uh, on his celebration just how much this means to him, and uh, he's talked about it before. He he won Kitzbühel uh, in the summer, um, which it's also a tournament that that means a lot to him, um, and I think. We often see players uh, excelling at home. Uh, obviously, there are examples of, of of the opposite as well. But a lot of players they 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 love uh, playing at home. You see it with uh, I'm sure we're going to get on to him, but Federer in Basel as well. And and uh, it it means so much to them, and it means so much to the to the country as well because. Uh, Seeing, seeing their own player at home uh, winning these titles. It's the type of thing that, that motivates uh, young players and, and makes makes kids pick up tennis, that kind of thing. So, so it means a lot to, for the player and, and for uh, the culture of tennis, uh, if you will, as well.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that in Sweden because your country has had a very rich uh, tradition. But you're right. I think uh, when a local player starts winning... It also mm-hmm. creates new fans because they're like diehard fans like yourself who are watching tennis in different time zones at night or, you know, following the score at work on your phone. That's what we all do. But when there is a local player who starts making news and you have, you're you lucky enough to have a local tournament in the city and then when that player, he or she comes there, I think it definitely adds uh, a, a new factor. And those fans can be temporary. Maybe that's when it happens when, uh, when Becker left Kiefer and Haas struggle in Germany. And then uh, it, 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 these, these things go in cycles. Sometimes you keep waiting for the next champion. So, yeah, definitely I think uh, we're sticking on to Dominic team's success, this is his third hard-court title, right? This year got the big win over Federer Indian Wells, then uh, won on the fast courts of Beijing, and now wins at home. How much uh, uh, are you associating this with a new voice, which is not new anymore, but Nicolas Massou was added to his team during the South American Swing, it started as an experiment and now Gunter Bresnik is more in the back and team and Masu are the new team. Uh, uh, how much of that you associated with that partnership, the success and the new brand of tennis team is playing on the hard courts?
1: Right, uh, well it, it's always hard to, to say just how much of a difference a coach makes. Uh, because sometimes it's, it's just natural development for a player who who as they get older get more mature and and start playing even better tennis than they have um uh, but i think with team as he is he turned 26 this year um and he has sort of been a bit on the same level for a few years now which is top 10 obviously so he's 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 an incredible tennis player but it, it it was so stark the difference ju- as soon as Masood joined joined the the team. Um, like I said, it, it's more it, it's more nuanced. Uh, he de- develops points better. He doesn't just hit hard uh, all the time. It, something he often did before, and we still see it sometimes now. And it's not going well. It's, he goes down the line very early in rallies, and he used to do that so much before, but he's tied that back and, and works with his incredible spin of, of both wings, and uh, uh, it's, it's three, four, five, six, seven-shot combinations that wins in the point. It's not just letting it rip, so to speak.
0: No, I think, Eric, that's a very good point. Um, I, I would like to bring uh, my good friend, you know, Mert Atunga, who is a regular on our podcast and contributes for our website. When he first came two years ago as a guest speaker, and he was talking about Dominic Team and Grigor Dimitrov, and, you know, that was one of the more fun podcasts I've ever done, and he was talking about tennis IQs, and that time Dominic Team's IQ was mentioned in our conversation, and Mert said, you know, he sometimes makes these decisions on court, which, you know, go against a very high tennis IQ, but now Mert himself has been on record saying the Dominic team has made steady progress. And like Mm -hmm. you said, you know, it doesn't have to be a pull, a trigger shot, you know, or in a very awkward position, a very tough shot. Now he plays the percentages and then unleashes. And and, and we've seen even the field that he went through in Beijing. Some of the matches were pretty impressive uh, on a a faster or medium-fast hard court. And now he wins at home. Uh, So definitely... uh, You're right, absolutely. You cannot uh, measure a coach's impact. Sometimes these things can take forever because you cannot unlearn what you've learned from the previous coach. So it's kind of not fair to just give one credit or most credit to like one person. Uh, But numbers also don't lie. Like right now, you know, their partnership is pretty good. They had an unfortunate run from Montreal to U.S. Open when team was down with a viral or virus uh, flu-like symptoms. But it looks like that's all behind him. And I think he's going to make a very strong push for the rest of the year.
1: Yeah, I completely agree.
0: Yeah. Uh, so let's uh, take the conversation forward to Roger Federer, who's won his 10th time in Basel. And that makes him, I believe, the first player who has won on two different surfaces, uh, these titles like Hala and now Basel. Uh, so this was again, this has become like an expected uh, strong week for Federer. Uh, they were also like a stretch when he lost a couple of finals, I believe, to Del Potro and uh, one to Djokovic. Uh, and he's played for fifteen finals at this tournament, so that's a pretty staggering number. Uh, did you follow most of those matches this week? Uh, how good was Federer looking, and uh, uh, were you surprised by the outcome at all?
1: Uh, yeah, I saw some of it. I didn't see every match, but, but bits and pieces. Um, yeah, he, he looked he looked very strong, as strong as we've seen in the last few years, really. Um, he um, he. Uh, had a nice first round with qualifier Peter Goyoshik and then Radha Albot so he got to play himself uh, into the tournament uh, pretty well. And then, of course, sadly, Babrinka had to pull out of the quarterfinal. And, and once Federer gets to the semifinal and he's this fresh, uh, this comfortable, uh, it's indoors, so he, he doesn't have to worry about uh, any... any Weather conditions that that sometimes hurt him uh, has done in the last few years, uh, so it, it do, didn't surprise me at all, uh, not one bit. There aren't that many players in this draw that that can hurt him really, and especially not at home. It's uh, when when Federer is comfortable, he 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 simply doesn't miss much, uh, and he's, he's in a he seems to be in a great state of mind as well so so didn't surprise me one bit and and it's uh he can definitely do damage uh, at least at the o2 um last i heard he hadn't made a decision about paris yet but yeah
0: yeah i think that decision is going to be made by the time this podcast is released or yet to be released because i think he's uh, leaning towards a decision tomorrow so we won't speculate uh how he's going to play in paris and we leave paris uh, pretty much alone because uh, making predictions is something, or looking further into the draw is something we don't do because the podcast should be relevant. If uh, uh, by the time this release, uh, but on that note, uh, you did make something. Federer is going to be definitely one of the contenders uh, at the O2. Um, so compared to what his form was uh, in uh, post US Open in Shanghai, and then of course he played uh, uh, three or four matches of the Labor Cup. Uh, did you see you know any any improvement like in a serving or any uh, the footwork? Uh, did he look sharp? And of course, he was very sharp. That you know, uh, the biggest challenge was Sitsi and he handled him pretty routinely. I must say, six four, six four, and uh, that that was one of his top ten wins for this year. But uh, did you see him uh, like more back in his like fluid motion compared to you know what we saw in the Dimitrov match at the U.S. Open? You think he's uh, he's match tough uh, for for the World Tour Finals now?
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, in when he played metro he obviously had, had had a back issue, uh, but that seems all behind him now. Uh, he he just uh, you, you can often tell by uh, Federer's um, body language uh, how what, what state of mind is in, and 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 he like you said he he looks incredibly fresh and he looks calm and composed, and uh, uh, that's the main thing main thing for me when when he is this this composed uh that's when you know he's going to produce some really really terrific tennis uh so i i think um he's definitely uh one of the main contenders for 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 the do2 uh
0: what's your opinion i know we might have talked about this in some thread involving others on uh, Twitter, but what's your impression of the of the year it has been for Federer? He had a decent clay swing and uh, that probably, in my view, enabled him to have a very strong Wimbledon. And uh, more importantly, he stayed in that match with Djokovic, which was somewhat of a physical match. And uh, So how do you look back at his year and how important was the clay piece? And I even did a poll myself or a thread myself a few weeks ago when I said uh, at this stage in his career, playing French would be a better choice than, I'm not saying he'll ever skip the US Open, but I think if Wimbledon is his goal, I think playing French kind of uh, makes sense for whatever remains of his career. So, I know it's kind of a uh, mixed up question, Uh, so take it in two parts. What Mm -hmm. do you see as the importance of clay and do you see uh, that's going to be a beneficiary schedule for the remaining years of Federer?
1: Yeah, I, I, I actually agree. I was I was hesitant uh, going into the clay season what exactly we were going to see from him, but uh, he uh, made us doubters uh, look like fools, to be honest, because uh, it's it's not like he has forgotten how to play on clay just because he ha- hasn't competed on it for, for, for a couple of years. Uh, and making semifinal uh, was a excellent an excellent result for him there uh, and I think it like you said it got him into to a uh, good state of mind and 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 prepared him well for for Wimbledon which uh, he uh, could have won as we all know um, and I, I think uh, I, th- I think he announced recently he was going to play the French next year, so so ob- obviously he seems to agree as agree as well. Uh, so I, I think I, I agree completely that it's probably the best way forward. Next year, however, is a little bit different because because of, of the Olympics. so uh, uh, but, but it's interesting he chooses to play it regardless of the Olympics, which I think is is, is a big goal for him as well.
0: Yeah, that definitely is uh, not a surprise to many. Again, a lot of people, you know, do their own math and think Uniqlo and Olympics is a big connection. But Mm. uh, the cat's out of the bag. You know, we don't have to speculate too much. Like you said, he's going to be playing Olympics and he's going to be playing Roland Garros. Don't know if he's going to enter Madrid as a tune-up to get some more matches in clay, But I think, yeah, uh, I mean, he makes a schedule, but I always thought... Uh, what I've seen in the last three years at U.S. Open, the losses to Milman uh, this year, Dimitrov, even taking the injury out of it, it's just uh, he's not the same player on these courts like he used to be the pre-roof days, and it's not you know an excuse for him. But I think at his stage uh, of his career, I think uh, you know conditions matter more than ever. I think for him yeah. to be a factor because uh, uh, it's pretty good that he can hang with Djokovic at Wimbledon. And you know, serve for the title come within match points, and he's beating Nadal on uh, the hard courts, even though they haven't played on a hard court for now, what two years? Uh, I think a lot of things, uh, rightfully so, have to go his way. But if he's playing his best tennis, yeah, he's 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 a handful for anyone.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I, especially what we what you were saying about uh, the conditions. I, th- I think right now. Uh, Understandably so, he, he's a lot more vulnerable to, to difficult conditions, and, and that's what we often get in New York. It's, it's incredibly hot, or humid, or windy, or you name it. Uh, so, I think, I think that's, that's a really good point, and I agree that uh, uh, he, his chances in New York, uh, judging by the last few years, are probably not ever going to be very good, uh, for whatever remains of his career. So, uh, like, I I think that's an interesting point that perhaps the French is is so to speak more important for him at the moment than than the U.S. Open. I, I...
0: And, and, and I'm only Eric. I'm only going by what he said. I think when he announced clay this year the schedule, he said uh, last year when he lost to Anderson, he felt he could use more rhythm on the matches with uh, more more ball play and not just blocking return, just driving through the ball. And I think those 10 matches in Rome or 11 matches in between the three tournaments, Madrid, Rome and Paris, I think allowed him not only to match tough, but trust his legs and and we could see how good he was at Wimbledon. So I think, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not trying to invent anything new. I think I'm just going by what he has said. And, and as great a player he is, I think uh, you still find a balance every year because last two years when everybody thought he should have played clay, he did not play clay. So every year, I guess... Uh, I think it's a new take and uh not only him i think be, I, I expect more of this from Djokovic and nadal you know in the next uh, few years i think they'll fine-tune their schedule and the focus will be on you know the biggest tournaments. i think that's what the game has gotten i think everybody's playing longer i think let's expect that to be a trend with all the top players
1: yeah i, I think i think that's that's a trend that's likely to continue as well um
0: Sure. I cool. mean, uh, unless you have another thought on Federer, I want to just switch uh, gears to uh, Yannick Sinner. You know, like uh, you've been doing some interesting polls and that's another poll that you ask everyone if you have heard of this guy, say, what, a year ago. And, uh, you know, the choices were, again, pretty interesting. I mean, I don't know when I heard of him. I, I believe it's definitely less than a year. Uh, everyone on Tennis Twitter and, you know, there are certain accounts you take them with more respect and if they back someone, then you start following them, and uh, this guy has uh, is the talk of the town. everybody's praising him, and he seems like one of those guys that just came from nowhere all of a sudden, and now he's joined the conversation as one of the most promising talents in the game. Uh, talk about uh, your uh, your graph as a fan and a reporter following him, and how impressed you are and when did you first spot him yeah his, his
1: rise this year has been absolutely incredible um, he uh, popped uh, onto the scene for me back in I think it was February maybe uh, when he um, played the Bergamo Challenger and, and he uh, made a final maybe one even I, I don't remember but he he uh, out of nowhere uh, in his first Challenger ever uh, played some incredible tennis uh, at, at age 17 and he probably looks closer to 12 than, than 17 to be honest with you uh, so so that's why I did that poll uh, if, if you had heard of him uh, 12 months ago and, and the choices were no yes I'm Italian or yes I'm a liar because and I got some replies from from people saying yeah well I did know about him and I'm sure I, I I believe that but he it, it came he it really came out of out of absolutely uh, nowhere for for more or less all of us
0: um, yeah that also coincides with the rise of uh, men's tennis in Italy of course everybody's talking about the promise the clear promise in Canada on both men and women's side which has been talked about for the last two years and bianca is taking it to the new level and then there's talent of the you know uh, Ymer brothers in Sweden. We'll get to them as uh, the concluding part of this podcast. But yeah, Italian tennis is looking good with Matteo you know, Again, another guy who I remember oh. seeing briefly last year. And the main match was uh, that I remember him was playing against Gulbis at Roland Garros round two. And then uh, his career has gone in the quite the opposite direction of Gulbis's. Gulbis cannot win matches, and this guy is, you know, is top ten now. So, yeah. and add Yannick Sinner to it, and of course, Fabio Fonini is playing really well. So, the Italian tennis looks pretty solid, and also, honorable mention to Thomas Fabiano for knocking out Pass and team in the last two majors.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Italian tennis is, is looking great, uh, which, is, um, which is great to see, because, because this is a, a country... Uh, for someone like me uh, who follows a lot of challengers uh, they have I don't know maybe 15 20 challengers uh, over the year in in Italy and it's always packed there are always uh, a lot of people there and, and for final day it's you know uh, it can be over a thousand people there and it's a great atmosphere um, so it's it's great to see that they are getting um, more and more uh men's players as, uh, who who um, are making inroads uh, and I, I think there's probably a connection there that that having we talked about it before having a lot of tournaments in in your country sparks interest and maybe more players pick up um more people pick up tennis as a result so i, I I'm delighted to see that
0: yeah, let's uh, t- uh, talk about uh, more about Sinner. So, what part of his game? I know he knocked out Monfils, uh mm. last week. Uh, so, what what are some of his weapons? As uh, someone who tunes into this podcast, most people who do are pretty knowledgeable, I would think, when you start listening to these podcasts by amateurs like myself. So, you know, you're looking for more tennis. So, you're coming looking for stuff that you already know. So, but Also, I'm sure uh, a section of the li- listenership here where they don't know many players. So, Talk about some of centers uh, strengths and uh, uh, what do you think are some of the... Is there a ceiling to this guy? I think, uh, you know, that's what I want to ask. A lot of people are very, very impressed. So talk about his game.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, first of all, he has huge ground strokes of, of both wings. And, you know, he, he's not a big muscular guy. He uh, He's not short, but doesn't have a lot of muscles. So... so it, um, I see people talk about that on, on Twitter a lot. Like, where is this guy getting getting the power from? It it just doesn't make sense, and, and that's what it's like watching him. And and on top of that, he's he's a great mover as well, and he can serve. Uh, and and there, I, I I'm not too sure about his net game yet, but you know, it can still de- develop. Um, and there aren't. Too many, too too many weaknesses to his game at the moment. I, I would say, and and as far as ceiling goes, it's incredibly hard to say. But um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw him top ten in in two or three years. To be honest, because uh, it's uh, it's it's incredible what he's doing, and and like you said, he beat Monfils He he does well in these tournaments. So I. I think we're going to see a lot of him, uh, even as soon as uh, next year.
0: Hmm, interesting. So that uh, brings me to a question, which again uh, is like a very uh, open question debate uh, on Twitter for, for quite some time. And Dominic Team has sparked it now. Some people are uh, putting Pass to the test. So when you follow the sport, and you know, especially with the rise of these new names, of Baratini and now Sinner, uh, Felix Ozreal, Sitsi Pass last year, when you start holding, uh, again, they make their own choices, but in these discussions, when you start holding a player accountable, because a lot of times where I'm going with this is fans say, oh, he's overplaying or she's overplaying. Oh, if if they want to be like Djokovic or Federer, schedule like them. But Djokovic and Federer were not built in a day. You know, It took years, and I'm sure when they both were young, Djokovic played Easter Hill, Federer played a lot of 250s. So people forget, like before Djokovic, Federer, Nadal started, Nadal, of course... Is an exception. He started winning very young, but when all these guys were young, they were playing big tournaments, a lot of heavy schedule. Now the thing is, very quickly this conversation takes place. So, in your uh, following of you know these careers and these graphs, are you quick to jump on someone's schedule, or you know this is something they'll figure out after two, three years? Uh, sometime the tour is too long. Sometimes the body's not ready to play 50, 60 matches. Uh, so what's your take on this? When you when you start driving this conversation about player A or player B's schedule?
1: Right. So so when they are um, as young as Tsetepas and and other players are like say early twenties uh, even teens if we include Ojhar uh, Aliassine I, I I think it's mostly good to 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 keep playing tournaments uh, part, partly because when you are that young, you, you just don't know how many matches you're going to win. So it's it, uh, in any given tournament. So it's good to pack your schedule to make sure you get that needed match play. Uh, and then, of course, when you uh, have entered tournament, you don't really want to withdraw. You want to go there and compete. Um, I, so so I, I really don't mind um, uh, when you're in your early 20s. I, th- I think once you start approaching... Uh, your mid twenties, and you have found yourself, so to speak, on, on the tour, and, and you know you're uh, going to win a lot of matches. That that's that's probably when when it's time to to cut back a little. I think I think Team overdid it uh, for at least two or three years. Uh, to be honest, it's really I think this year, maybe last year as well, he started to cut back a little. Uh, I, I think he could have started doing that a lot. Earlier, um, but but I, I I agree with your point. If that was your point, that the for young players that it's something they will learn. Uh, and playing a lot of matches and tournaments at a young age is is uh, beneficial in many cases.
0: And you know, it's also coming from the reason because I've followed tennis uh, for more than what now three decades. And of course, uh, as players, you know, the game gets better. Uh, as fans, our knowledge gets better too. Because uh, what I thought smart few years ago, I've, I'm, you know, I evolved. I don't think like that. And some of the things uh, I realize uh, in this golden era of men's tennis is we are fascinated by the slams and the consistency and the big titles. But uh, my point is, uh, sometimes we take away the small things, like say, for example, like a guy who to his top 10 only once. That's a big thing for that person. And uh, similarly, the year is constructed around smaller tournaments and ranking points. So players, you know, it's all about the prize money. It's all about the ranking point. And I think eventually when they get to that point where they are firmly established financially and firmly established in the top 15, top 20, then I think if they see themselves as a contender, then they can start weighing you know, in on some big tournaments. Uh, like Hubie Hurka is a classic example. He won in North Carolina. Uh, of course, he, like any professional, went in with the expectation or aspiration of doing his best. But when he goes deep and wins this tournament, and uh, that impacts him when he has to come back and play Shardy in the first round of US Open in less than 48 hours. And I knew when I saw the draw that this is going to be a tricky match. It went the distance, went five, but Hubie looked like, you know, uh, rightfully so. There, there was too much tennis in, like, in the span of six or seven days. And uh, will he learn from this? Uh, I'm sure. You can't take away your first title. That's a great memory. But next year, uh, if he's close to top 30, he may not go and defend his title. Again, that's how the tour is structured. And uh, that's the point sometimes, you know, I observe. I'm not saying whoever's saying anything about schedule is right or wrong, but that's my two cents. Sometimes, you know, we use the example of Novak or Roger or, you know, some of the big guys. But they also became big after a body of work and a schedule. Yeah, let's uh, hold Sitsi Pass, uh to this test in two years from now when he's failing to win Grand Slams. He's 22 or 23, and, you know, then we can say, you know what, this guy's playing too much. Maybe his body can handle the tennis. Maybe he wants to play too much to know his limits. So I think sometimes the schedule talk is has a flip side. I'm not saying it's wrong, but uh, that's something I wanted to just, you know, run it by you, and this is where I'm coming from, what I think.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah, I think you make some some, some very good points. Uh um... Players will will learn as they age, uh, and I think uh, Hercat doesn't regret playing playing one one bit and getting his first title. So yeah, I think I think those are good points.
0: So yeah, on that note, let's bring uh, your coverage of the Stockholm Open. You've been there uh, as a journalist in the last few years. Uh, talk about uh, the recent tournament that uh, happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, what are some of the good memories, you know, what are some of uh, the matches that you watch and if you want to share with the audience some interesting points and, you know, uh, just the overall experience of covering that event.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was it was really, um, really enjoyable. Um, uh, obviously for me, it, it, it's a bit of a commute, not too, too big, but it's uh, maybe an hour and a half, two uh, hours for me to get there. Um, uh, so, so you, you know, it's it, it's it's a bit of work, but I, I loved uh, you know watching live tennis is is, is always great um, and getting there. Uh, I was there for a total of four days, um, and uh, I remember my first match I watched uh, was uh, Cedric Marcel Stebe uh, against Oscar Otte in in the qualifiers um, and. Actually right away I was really impressed by Stebe uh, obviously he, w- he went on to make the quarterfinals there but uh, he, that's a guy who was away for 16 months or so with, with, with injury and he's, he's coming back now and, and that, w- that was great to watch and um, the way he uh, honestly uh, picked apart uh, Mikhail Emer. Uh, the Swedish number one in in the second round was uh, quite a sight. O- obviously, I wasn't happy with it because I wanted Emer uh, to win. But but sometimes you just gotta sit back and say, well, hey, this guy's pretty good. So so uh, yeah, that that's actually perhaps surprisingly so. But Sterbe is. is uh, w- what I remember the most from it, obviously, Chapovalo winning it. I wasn't there for for the final Sunday, uh, but that that was great as well. But I, I think I think Stebe for me is, is the main main thing.
0: No, I think it's a it's an interesting point you make, and sometimes, uh, you know, the way the sport is followed and how you consume it is about superstars. But there's so many stories each week, and Stebe is one guy, you know, who. You're right. He came back from a big injury, but he's been injured before. And some players are not as fortunate with their bodies; they get a lot of injuries. And this is a small window. Uh, as an athlete, they have to, you know, you know, make best time of their career. And and it's just so so fascinating to see someone coming back and trying to win these matches. I was at the U.S. Open qualifying myself, and I saw a match between Kamki and uh, I think uh, the Argentine player Andreozzi. And I've seen Andreozzi on TV and followed his clay progress and that was a very competitive match uh it was like pretty hot but you know if you were to watch one match courtside, side which you can do in qualifying it was it just shows how all these matches mean a lot for all these professionals you know each match counts each point counts and you win this and then you're closer to qualifying for a slam in this case in your uh experience stockholm open uh again you know it's a ATP is a playground and, you know, nothing is taken granted when you're playing this tournament. So let's talk about Shapovalov. Did you see some of his matches while you were at the Stockholm Open? I know you were not there for the final, but did you see him play the rest of the week?
1: Yeah, I saw uh, two matches, I think. Um, it's first and second match, I believe, I, if I remember correctly, I should say. Um, but yeah, he. Um, um, th- there actually are some similarities between him and and, and team. Uh, perhaps even more striking is so with Chaparro, the the sort of I'm just going to hit this ball hard, you know. Um, but but uh, obviously he has brought in Eugenie now, and uh, it's the the infamous expression controlled aggression comes to mind uh, when I see when when I saw him. Uh, it's. Uh, point construction, and uh, he doesn't hit as hard as he can hit because he doesn't have to. He has a lot of natural power, regardless. Uh, so uh, he was he was really impressive, and and I, I think he on his first serve through the four matches he played, I, th- I think he only lost six points during the week, which is obviously incredible. Uh, so um, I uh, yeah, it, it was great. It was great to see him, see him up
0: close. No, you, you're right about the point of Shapovalov again. Uh, there's a lot of potential, a lot of talk, and uh, uh, even our website. I'm sure you guys have too discussed uh, his ability, of, you know, making incredible shots, but then also some. At the same time, you scratch your head with the shot selection. And he's a work in progress. Clearly, with the first title means so much. Last year, Sitsipas won his first title, beating Gulbis, and this year, Shapovalov wins his first title. Uh, same scores, kind of uh, very, you know, weird similarities between those two wins. Uh, so, did you and Alex uh, were you there in the press room? If you did, you guys get a chance to speak with Dennis this year at all? Or, uh,
1: yeah, I think I I, I wasn't I wasn't. There for the interview, but Alex and our other colleague uh, uh, Patrick, Patrick uh, Ragan uh, is his name. Uh, they, they they interviewed Dennis after his first match. No, no, they interviewed him after the quarterfinal and uh, uh, asked asked him about his semi-finals record, which was uh, 0-7 going into uh, Stockholm Open, uh, and. You know, he, overall, he he was in a good mood. But as soon as uh, he was asked about the semi semifinal record, he was really, just bluntly said, "Yeah, hopefully I can win one." And that was it. He gave long, thoughtful answers to everything else. So, I I, I think that was really important for him to to own just make the final, but also of course win it. But yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's a huge uh, moment for him. And uh, once, like you said, when numbers start adding. Up, you know, he's he was losing all the semifinals, and then he finally get to the final, and is now one zero. So again, those stats are important, and uh, hopefully, you know, he's exercised those demons, and now looking forward to adding more more scalps, as I say. Uh, let's talk about the Emer brothers. When I spoke with Alex uh, uh, not too long ago, I think it's what five months ago. Uh, how, how how is the Swedish tennis market consuming tennis through through them? Are they becoming more popular? I know uh, there's some challenge of success that came recently, uh, to, uh, I, no, Ili, not Elias, right? Mikael Emerswey, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. I'm, yeah. So yeah. how has uh, their popularity been uh, in Sweden? Given, of course, tennis is kind of struggling for mainstream coverage in Sweden. But uh, how are the tennis fans looking at these two guys?
1: Yeah, well, um, like you say, the, like a hint, uh, it's it. Depends. Uh, if you ask a tennis nerd like me or a tennis casual uh, who only watches, you know, uh, five or ten matches a year, um, mm-hmm. because I I, th- I think a lot of people uh, unfairly view them as as disappointments, you know, uh, just because we have this rich uh, tennis tradition in Sweden with with great Slam success and and everything, especially on male side of obviously. Um, so I when they were starting to make inroads, you know, if people started talking about them four or five, six years ago, um, people people thought, okay, yeah, here here are some guys who are finally gonna win us some slams, uh, which which obviously is unfair, but that's the way People view tennis in Sweden. So, so, um, but I, I think um, with Mikkel, who who has climbed maybe 200 ranking places this year um, in the top 100, now I, people are starting to to appreciate that. At least I think um, I think it will come even more when he starts playing slams regularly. Um, so, so you know, it, I, it depends who you ask, but 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 uh, more and more, I think uh, people will just be be glad that there there's someone at least.
0: Yeah, the luck hasn't been on the side of the Swedes in the last what 15 or so years. Andreas Vinseguera, uh, mm-hmm. career was also cut short. Then everybody knows how uh, injuries had a hand in uh, Joachim Johansson and Robin Soderling. So. Yeah, I think the Swedes do need a resurgence. Uh, such a great uh, tennis history there. So what do you think is uh, Mikhail Ymir's uh, best surface if he has to strike uh, next year somewhere and you know make even bigger inroads towards the top of the ranks? Where do you fancy him doing best? What stretch of the season? Is it clay or American hardcore swing? Do you think he could be a factor maybe in Brisbane and Australia?
1: Um, he... I think he has three challenger titles, maybe four, even this year, And I, because I know he has won uh, on clay, indoor hard, and outdoor hard. So, obviously, he's, he's, he's very versatile, um, but it's uh, clay that, that I would say is his best surface. Uh, with, he, has, he has great court coverage. Uh, he's, he's incredible defensively, actually. It, it's um, uh, finding ways to, to end points, uh, we just held him back previously. He's gotten a lot better at that this year. Uh, but I, th- I, th- I think clay will be his best bet and probably the, the uh, South American swing because, as you know, there are a few top players go and play the South American clay swing. Uh, so I think uh, he can go there and, and hopefully win some matches because uh, there's always an opportunity there like what we saw this year with uh, Lasso Jair winning in Rio, I think it was out of nowhere. So, so I think I think that would be uh, his best chance, probably.
0: All right, So let's conclude this conversation. We're talking about Filip Krajanovic. He's another guy who's come to the tournament, right? Uh, Do you get a chance to see any of his matches? And
1: uh... yeah, um, yeah, I saw him uh, beat Dimitrov. Um, and I think I saw another match of his as well. Uh, no, wait, he didn't beat Dimitro, he beat Query. Query beat Dimitro. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I, I was I was really uh, impressed with him, uh, the way, especially on his backhand side, he really stepped into the court. I, I think his average hit point in some matches was inside the baseline, you know. He he uh, took the ball on the rise and, and just hit, through the, through the court uh, incredibly uh so, so that w- that was great to see it's always fun to watch players to do what they can to to up the tempo so so yeah he, he was entertaining to watch
0: yeah, yeah he's definitely a, another guy who's been knocking on the door for quite some time uh and i think uh, yeah he, he he can definitely make his move close to uh the top 20 of the game and maybe stay there for a while, because I believe he has been close to top 20 before, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, I think you're correct, yeah.
0: All right, so, Eric, I think we covered quite a lot, as expected. Uh, uh, of course, you brought a lot to the table, a lot of different discussions. Uh, I hope everybody who tunes into the pod- podcast enjoys this conversation. And, uh, yeah, uh, let's uh, let's try to do this again sometime early next year. Uh, season's going to be wrapped up uh, soon, but uh, we'll uh, we'll continue to have a dialogue on Twitter and uh, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Sakib joined by Matt in segment two of this week's. Uh, podcasts uh lots going on in both tours and uh, matt Semek and i will try to talk some of the more current and hot topics and matt uh, uh let's start with roger federer he's not going to be playing the atp tours inaugural launch event in sydney this uh came in as a shock to many uh what are your uh what are your first thoughts when you saw this and uh uh did you see this coming or were you surprised at all that he was going to play this event to begin with
2: uh you know i i did think he was going to play uh without uh, Hopman cup uh it was natural to think that he would need some kind of warm up event now of course you know, he could still find one uh but i thought that was going to be his landing spot um but i mean you know is it an overwhelming shock not necessarily um, you know, Federer has, you know, Federer's baby is Labor Cup, and Labor Cup has gained ATP sanctioning and 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 approval. So, you know, how much he feels he has to participate in any of these other cups, uh, that you know, that's an open question. So, it, it it's interesting, not so so much from Federer's standpoint, but that's obviously a a, a you know a newsworthy. Plot point, but it's more about with all of these niche events, how are they all going to carry the entertainment dollar? How are they all going to uh, maintain a foothold? That you know that that is a very uncertain element. And the Labor Cup really has already established its brand, and, and that's what's going to make the ATP Cup so interesting, and also the PK Cup. You know, I'm not going to call it Davis Cup; it's the PK Cup um it's it's you know it's going to be a whole new world and we're going to see if these events hit the sweet spot or if they fall flat and obviously it's a it's a it's a blow for the ATP cup not a, not a fatal blow um not a crushing blow but a blow uh and and we'll see if 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 other prime players uh can carry that event in january
0: yeah definitely but uh, uh you think uh, uh Fedor- Overestimated, I think, uh, his commitment because he has a busy schedule. Uh, I think he's playing some exhibitions, and then I think uh, he probably made the right call. I think, uh, given his uh, career and how he wants to prolong it, but at the same time, it is coming as a disappointment to you know all those fans who bought these tickets. And uh, Federer Murray was the top build act uh, for the opening of the season, Uh, so way on, way on uh, those points. exhibition uh, playing the slate in the season is very similar to what he played in 2012 and then 2013 wasn't exactly the best of starts for him
2: yeah you know that that's a good point i think that the, i think the reason he didn't play Bercy, i think the reason he uh didn't enter the paris indoor masters was because of the exhibitions i think that that was the decision federer made which is tied to the exos i'm not so sure that the atp cup uh is tied to the exhibitions i'd say that bercy is is more connected to that um now you know that's just my opinion just because i say it it's definitely not true uh but that that's just my sense of the matter um i i do think that fetter is you know still pretty good at picking his spots and i i think the other thing that's worth commenting on and this isn't about the atp cup so much as it is about bercy i mean to me, it seemed as though this was a natural time to play, Bercy He barely played any tennis in Basel. He didn't play uh, a single set longer than 10 games, 6-4. And he didn't play any three-set matches. And he played Monday, Wednesday. Then he didn't play for two days. He didn't play Thursday because of the schedule. He didn't play Friday because he got the walkover against Bafrinka. So we went from uh, Wednesday to Saturday, not playing matches Thursday or Friday. Handled Sitsipas easily. Handled R in the final easily. If ever you were going to play Bercy after Basel, this was it because Basel involved you know about four and a half hours of on court time, and and none of his matches were especially stressful. So you know it wasn't that he he was tired uh, from Basel. It was that he was more thinking ahead to the ATP finals, wanting to make sure that, you know, with this loaded field we're going to have, Medvedev, you know, playing at a high level despite the loss in Bercy, you know, Zverev picking up the pace, Tsitsipas, team with the new and improved hardcourt version of the Austrian, and then, of course, Djokovic and Nadal. I think he wanted to make sure he had the heavy gunpowder ready for London and also the uh, South American exhibitions that he's going to do.
0: Yeah, I think I agree with what you're saying, but uh, my viewpoint here is slightly different. You're absolutely right, Like he didn't have to spend too much energy and too much court time in winning his 10th uh, event in his hometown, but at the same time, I think uh, he's been pretty open uh, about big titles uh, recently. And uh, World Tour Finals, even when Federer was playing in his prime and his peak tennis, World Tour Final was something very close to, I think, his favorite tournaments. And he just said uh, he missed out on in Indian Wells in Wimbledon, even though he won uh, the Masters 1000 in Miami. I think uh, he takes this as a... Again, I, I don't want to put any words, but you, you would have to think every chance is seen as a one last big chance. Uh, he probably will play into uh, 2021. Uh, no retirement Tour has been announced, but I do think uh, if he's feeling healthy and he's not carrying a niggle, uh, he probably fancies his chances and uh, in the indoor court. And after Djokovic, he has to be the second favorite. Uh, granted, Nadal's playing—you know, Nadal's going to be number one by the time the tournament rolls around. But uh, just because of the success and indoors, uh, you have to put a healthy Federer uh, number two, unless Daniel Medvedev—you uh, know—is again a guy who can show up at indoors. So. Uh, that's my two cents. So, let's quickly change topics to uh, the women's tennis. Uh, there are a couple of withdrawals. Uh, seasons are always uh, considered long. The kind of tennis that's being played on both ends. But uh, uh, today, Bianca Andreescu couldn't finish, and then uh, Naomi Osaka called it a season. Uh, your thoughts on those two? Those two injuries. Uh, is Andreescu still in the tournament, or is she just? Uh, is she also out? Well, you know, she hasn't
2: chosen to, you know, we're recording this for our listeners to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. We're recording this Wednesday night. So uh, on Wednesday, after the retirement against Karolina Pliskova, Andrescu said she'd wait for the MRI on Thursday uh, to make a decision on whether she would play her final round-robin match against Elena Svitolina, but she will, she cannot make the semis. So that, that Spidalina match will be the end of her season if she plays it. And it seems kind of silly to play that one extra match knowing that you're already injured. Um, so, you know, if you're listening to this podcast on, on Friday, you, you can know that her season will already be over. It's just a matter of uh, relative to when we're recording this podcast, whether she went through with the decision to play Spidalina or to shut it down. And, and hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, she did make the decision not to play that Spidalina match. Because there's the the upside is so non-existent and the risk is so considerable. So in terms of Andrescu and Osaka, you know, ironically enough, the two players who on paper seem to be the best choices uh, to meet in the final. You know, the WTA finals just always overturn conventional wisdom. They all the last several editions, going back to 2015 when uh, Agnieszka Radwanska won it. Uh, the last several WTA finals are just completely overturned uh, the conventional thought process. The main thing to take away from this socket is that the, the court in Singapore, the past five years, 2014 to 2018, everyone knew it was a very slow, gritty court. And that's why defense-minded players such as Radvanska, such as Caroline Wozniaki, and Svitolina last year did so well at it. And this isn't a commentary on any player. This is just that in the late season events – when players have logged the miles and they're they're just about to get to the off season when they get a nice long break the late in the season when players bodies are tired the the hard the hard court surfaces and the balls let's not forget the balls in this the cor- the combination of the court and the ball should be conducive to very fast court tennis very quick short points where you know it's a hitter's paradise and you can win by hitting the ball through the court fairly easily. Because when, when the players' bodies are worn down, we should have a less attritional form of tennis. And we saw in the andrescu halep first round robin match in Shenzhen, uh, they, they, don't, they were really straining and, and making a great effort uh, to try to hit the ball through the court through two very contentious sets. And both players asked for a medical timeout, after the second set of that match. So tennis really needs to understand that you can have slow hard courts. I'm not opposed to slow hard courts on a blanket level, Sakib. It's just that you should have slow hard court tennis in the winter season, January, February, March. In the second half of the hard court season, uh, the, the other hard court season in the summer and fall, August through early November, you should have fast hard court tennis so that with tired players you, you you know that when players are going to take the court they're they're not going to get roped into 3 hour 3 set matches they can play quick fast points and their bodies are going to be a lot better off as a result tennis needs to show some leadership on that issue obviously it being tennis i don't expect leadership to to emerge but that that is what the sport ought to be doing if it really cares about the long-term wellness of its players
0: so are you also advocating the same uh, change for the World Tour Finals in London, uh, surface wise, or do you think? It's a, yeah,
2: it's a, this is a general this is a general statement. So going from Canada, Cincinnati, U.S. Open, the the um, Asian Swing, Shanghai, Beijing, um, and then on into uh, the you know Bercy, and then the WTA Finals and the ATP Finals, all those events, both tours. Yes, this August through early November, tennis should be fast court
0: tennis. All right, there you go. So that's uh, definitely some food for thought, whoever tunes into this podcast. And Matt, let's uh, wrap this conversation about uh, the very likelihood of Sasha Zverev making uh, his third uh, successive, I think, trip to the World Tour Finals, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, he was a defending champion, had a bumpy season, so many rough losses, and I think it's going to take a very uh, lopsided mathematical equation. Uh, Wawrinka performance or something similar uh, like a Mompfis or Waw- oh, sorry, uh, Wawrinka going deep. I think that's what it is. And then uh, otherwise he's a lock. So your your thoughts on this very revival? I know you've spoken about how Labor Cup you know meant a lot to his confidence, and then he reached the final in Shanghai, uh, had an early loss in Basel, but uh, looked sharp against uh, Verdasco, who himself wasn't uh, lighting it up. In Bercy yesterday.
2: Yeah, I think the main thing is just that Zverev's going to get to London. I think that's big for him. You know that he could have a down year, unquestionably a down year, and yet he still gets to the year-end championships. That you know that does show something, partly about his resilience. You know he could have packed it in, um, but uh, but he made that big run in Shanghai, which made all the difference for him uh, in getting to London. You know, so he he, he can look at that and say, hey, you know, I do have some staying power in this sport. Even when I'm not at my best, I can still get to the year-end tournament. I don't think that what he does at the ATP finals is going to be all that significant for the simple reason that, you know, we saw what he did last year and it didn't translate to Australia. So I think we need to put, getting to London's great for his confidence. What he does in London, I would not be quick to apply that Uh, to the 2020 Australian Open, either positive or negative. I think it's going to be a clean slate. I think he's going to really enjoy uh, a few months off after all of the stresses and distractions off the court that were part of his uh, 2019 season. I think it is important he got there, but once he gets there, I don't think he's under enormous pressure to have to perform. I think that uh, Medvedev, and we're going to talk about the ATP Finals Next week, but I think that Medvedev really is the is the ultimate point of intrigue at the ATP Finals.
0: Yeah, very well said, and I'm going to hold some of uh, those uh, thoughts and comments uh, uh, for the next week's show. So on that note, uh, let's wrap this up, and uh, we'll be back uh, with another episode talking more tennis. And uh, please keep sharing uh, the podcast links; it's available on platforms. Uh, with your friends and fellow listeners who like to listen to Tennis podcasts, uh, this is Saqib and Matt signing off and we'll be back with another episode next week thanks for listening bye for now